Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm used to making people mad. Another yeah. of my mantras is that I, I try to remind myself every day that it's my job to disappoint the right people. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are listening to and or watching an episode of In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And uh, this goes out live on Facebook first, and then it's on Facebook, and then it's on YouTube, and then it's everywhere good podcasts can be found after that. And today I'm in conversation with Dara Star Tucker, who is a singer-songwriter and social commentator. And some of her music includes Dara Star Tucker and Dreams of Waking. Those are albums. I just was asking her when the vinyl will be available, and I guess it'll be soon, but those are already where you find albums on Spotify and all that place, places like that. And um, I was interviewed by Dara, I think a week ago or two weeks ago, My I never am good on time, a while back, but not long ago, a few days ago. And I was frustrated because I'm so used to doing interviews myself on my own podcast, and Dara is so interesting and so talented that I was kind of unhappy that I was having to answer questions about my views and my politics and my life when I really wanted to talk to her. So I don't know if I did this while we were still on the podcast, but right afterwards or while we were on it, I said, hey, listen, how about we do one where I get to interview you finally and listen to you and find out who you are. And Ernie, my producer, turned it around lickety split. Uh, and so here we are. And I, I know this is going to sound weird, but... I didn't know anything about your music, Dara. Um, I had um, not known that you were a musician. So I have discovered your music since being interviewed by you. And um, I don't know whether to go there first or whether to go into the politics or to go into the fact you interviewed me. I don't know where to start, but I'll begin in a weird place. Okay. I was looking up your music on YouTube and all those other places that one finds things, knowing nothing about you and not knowing what to expect. Um, and, I, and I love jazz anyway, so what you do fit in with it. Before I looked you up, I'm working on some cupboards I'm making. I do carpentry, and I was listening to one of my favorite opera singers, Renetta Scotto, who's passed away, and I'm an opera fan and a jazz fan and a music fan. And I thought to myself, oh, that's not fair because I've just been listening to Renata Scotto. Now I'm going to go listen to 
Gareth Star Tucker. And, you know, it's, oh, I'm, and I was apologizing to you in my head thinking, oh, you know, this is, this is stupid. I'm listening to one of my favorite opera singers and it doesn't matter who she is. This is not going to stack up. Yeah. Well, it did. Wow. I, I was stunned. Wow. So I actually paused what I was listening to and I called my wife, Jeannie. We've been together 53 years and we think alike. <laughs> um, and I said to her, listen to this. And I didn't tell her that I'd just been interviewed by you. And she said, who is that? <laughs> and I told her about you and she looked really amazed. I guess that's, you know, you assume, you know, everybody who's brilliant already. Somehow that's mm. a terrible thing. And she said, um, and her, her question was very simple. She says, why haven't we ever heard of her? Well, and I said, well, she's never interviewed me before today. And that's why I'm <laughs> listening to her. And I'm going to do a podcast with Ernie because now I want to know all about her. So since then, I just want to tell you, I've taken a very deep dive and I've been listening to your stuff. Oh. And I just think that your voice is stunning. Thank I you. mean, you're you're right up there with the greats. Wow. I, I wouldn't say that if it wasn't true, because it would make me look stupid to anybody who <laughs> then now goes and listen to you says, what is Frank talking about? Why was he sucking up to her? Maybe <laughs> was she a donor? What's the deal here? I mean, Dara, who are you and where did you come from? Because you are one of the great jazz singers of all time. And I'm being serious. Wow. I, I mean, I grew up on Mahalia Jackson and started with gospel. My dad would listen to that and then, you know, went on to... Ella and all the rest of it. And you're right in there. What the hell? Who are you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and almost sounds accusatory. I'm just like, <laughs> I know. Where have you been? Where were you on the night of? No, I, I, it's, I, I, I don't even know what to do with that. Um, I, I, I really, I'm trying to receive that in the spirit in which it was given, but I, I have been toiling away for, I toiled away for a long time in all, of all places, Nashville, Tennessee. So that is where I built a lot of my career. And I don't know that that has been the hub where, you know, people look to for, for um, jazz music necessarily. I have recently in the last few years moved up to the Northeast. I was in um, kind of close to the New York area, Northern Jersey for a couple of years during the pandemic. So now I'm in Philly. So now I feel like I'm kind of getting to rub shoulders a little bit with, with a few folks who maybe have more to do with the scene itself. So that may explain why I've been kind of off the beaten path, why a lot of people may not have, have encountered my music before um, just because I feel like I've been doing this, from a distance a little bit, even though I've put out multiple albums. So um, yeah, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I grew up in, in a family that was Christian and I didn't grow up listening to, I definitely grew up, grew up listening to standards and watching musicals and sneaking off and listening to jazz, you know, with a radio under my pillow and all of that. But I grew up in, my father was a music minister um, and my mother was a, a singer and we weren't allowed to listen to secular music. So I just, I kind of found it on my own. I've never been to school for music and um, have just kind of toiled away for the last, I would say about 15 years doing doing what I do. Well, we got to talk about the music mostly because it's just, it's phenomenal. And well, thank you. You do a lot of other things. So before we get back to the music, which is really all I want to talk about, because <laughs> I've been stunned by your voice. I'm not kidding you. I really, it's just crazy. It's like walking past an art gallery and you've never heard of Matisse. And then there's this thing in the window and it's like, who painted that? It's like that. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I'm being serious, being totally sincere. Um, 
but let's let's just back up a little bit. I, you interviewed me because you and me share sort of evangelical backgrounds. Um, you talked a little bit about yourself. Talk a little more about your family, how you grew up in, in that, and then sort of moved to someplace else. Let's let's delve into your journey a little bit on the spiritual side, and then let's get back to your music. Okay. Yeah. I well, I interviewed you not as a part of my podcast because I have a podcast as well, but I interviewed as, as I've interviewed you as a part of the Burn the Boats podcast, and they asked me, "Who do you want to talk to?" And I had done a previous conversation with another author whose name is escaping me right now, but one of the names that I gave them in the first place was yours. Mm. And I had run across your name because of my sister, Dalicia. I have six brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And one of my older sisters uh, went to ORU or Roberts University in Tulsa as well. And I have a younger, two older sisters who went there and one younger sister who also went there. Um, And she introduced me to you during the pandemic and said, hey, did you know that Francis Schaeffer has a son who is out there? He's speaking, he writes books, and he has come away from the evangelical world. He's come out of that and he's, you know, more of a thinker. He's challenging a lot of this Christian nationalism because we were freaking out about the whole Donald Trump thing. and, And it just, everything was crazy. It was 2020. And I mean, not that it isn't still crazy now, but that was when I became aware of you and when my sister, Dalisha, introduced me to mm-hmm. your name. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I haven't heard the name Francis Schaefer in forever. And I had attended ORU. And those films, as I said to you on, on the Burn the Boats podcast, those films were uh, of your father's were, um, I don't want to use the word notorious, but they really they really were just anyone that I mentioned his name to or those. Everyone remembers them. Yeah, Uh, because we were they were really kind of kind of shoved down our throat. We had no choice but to watch them in our humanities classes. And if you go to Oral Roberts University, at least at that time, you were forced to take four years of humanities courses through a very specific lens. Now, I love the humanities and I loved the information that was being shared. And I actually liked your father's films. I Mm -hmm. liked them, even though they were, I don't know if they were from the the 70s or they looked even older than that. Yeah, early early 70s. And I produced them with with dad and directed them. So, yes. yes. And by the way, we're talking about How Should We Then Live, which is a series on our culture. And, yes. And and I plugged into that because I loved the intellectualism. I had never really heard Christianity through the lens of intellectualism. And that appealed to me. Yeah. Um, and so I was into it. And, and it, but everybody else that I knew was just like, oh, God, you know, you got to watch these films and this is awful and blah, blah, blah. But I tried my best to plug into it, even though I didn't I didn't understand everything that sure. was in them. But I I, I tried my best. And so yeah, that's, that's the world that I, that I come from. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. I just, you know, I just threw your name out there and they said, yeah, we can, we can get him and you can, you can talk to him if you want to. So um, I come from kind of a dual, it's a bit of a dual background. My grandmother, my, my father's mother mm-hmm. was a Pentecostal holiness minister. So a lot of the shouting, the dancing, the rolling around on the floor, the laying on of hands, praying in tongues, all of that stuff. And then through this holiness lens, which is very much women wearing dresses down to their, you know, their mid calf and, you know, covering up and no makeup. And that kind of thing is where my dad came from. And his his mother was a pastor for 60 years or something. And she worked with the homeless in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her name was Mother Grace Tucker. And uh, my mother got with that ministry when she was very young, but then my father kind of moved away from that that circle and moved into more of the Christian evangelical, word of faith, non-denominational, charismatic mm-hmm. movement. 
and worked with some very large ministries in that world. And he was a piano player and they brought him in the initial um, pastor named Buddy Harrison that brought him in in Tulsa to his church called Faith Christian Fellowship. He brought him in because he wanted a black music minister. He wanted someone to bring in this influence of um of soul and he knew that his church would grow this is the late 70s 1978 yeah. my father started working for this church so my father kind of came out of that more traditional fundamentalist holiness pentecostal movement and then went into this sort of charismatic uh um you know word of faith movement which we now kind of generally refer to as evangelical um movement so we kind of grew up with two with with one foot in each of those worlds and so i feel like i see a lot of these issues from two very different perspectives and of course being black and being raised partly in the black church and but the church we grew up in in the evangelical world was very mixed and so this whole leaning now that we have towards you know this almost this white christian nationalism and and the you know jerry falwell being a segregationist and bob jones university and those histories which i have discussed and i have studied in in my work doing a series called the breakdown where i make these short films on all kinds of subjects. So studying that world more deeply, it really surprised and disappointed me to learn how deeply steeped in white Christian nationalism a lot of those those um those churches can be. And you know, I think just as an, an outflow of the fact that I am a black person, I would not have necessarily been as plugged into the the segregationist um, element of all of that as I as I could have been simply because we were brought in. We were usually surrounded by people that were doing outreach to the black community who wanted black people involved in the the past. One of the pastors that I grew up under, Buddy Harrison, he like I said, he sought my father out and he wanted a mixed congregation. He wanted that. And he yeah. built his church in, you know, what was then the hood. And so my perception of what these people were and what they were all about and what their goals were, even though there was a lot of Christian nationalism uh, surrounding us, my perception about that really didn't have as as strong of a, of a tinge of, of racism um, as as what I understand it to be now, you know, after doing a lot of the study that I've done over mm -hmm. the last several years. And so, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. And we moved around all over the place. I've lived in Spokane, Washington and Pasadena, California, uh, New Jersey, Baltimore, Maryland, Arkansas, Oklahoma. I've just kind of lived everywhere. And then um, in school in, uh, at ORU, I studied international business and German studies. And I left and moved to Switzerland, Interlock yeah, in Switzerland, which is another connection. when you were interviewing me, because that's where I was born. And yeah. Now I want to, that was one of the points that I wanted to say, oh, tell me all about that. <laughs> we're interviewing me. So I couldn't. Now I'm going to say, tell me all about that. Yeah, Switzerland was, uh, it, it was initially because, you know, going to a kind of a smaller Christian liberal arts college in Oklahoma, which I had no intention of going to ORU. I wanted to go to UCLA and I wanted to study film. And my father kind of, you know, pushed me in that direction. We had no money, no connections, and, you know, not even the ability to figure out how to, how to patch in and connect to UCLA. So it, ORU it was, and I hated it, um, at least initially, but I wanted that education. So studying international business and German studies at a college like that, as you can imagine, there wasn't much connection to the culture. There wasn't there wasn't really the opportunity to travel and do, uh, you know, you usually you would do at least a semester of study abroad uh, if you're going to be learning, uh, you know, majoring in a language and certainly international business. But none of those opportunities were available to me. And so after college, 
I um, worked for a couple of years in the field of language training and uh, cultural training mm-hmm. in Detroit, Michigan, uh, where my family had previously lived. And then as I was like, okay, I, I don't know. I never felt like I got to the level of fluency in German that I wanted to. So I'm like, let me move abroad. And so I chose Switzerland. It was just kind of a, a coin toss between Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I knew I wanted to be in a German speaking country. And little did I know that the uh, dialect of German that is spoken in Switzerland is very different from the the Hochdeutsch or the high German that's spoken in Germany, which I had visited Germany a couple of times and I had friends that lived there. But yeah, it was interesting. It was it was it was a hodgepodge of all kinds of cultures. There were Serbians, Yugoslavians, there were Dutch, there were Austrians, there were all kinds of people mixing and melding there. So thankfully, I did get an exposure to to high German and I did au pairing. I took care of, of you know, a couple of children while I was there. And so that was just my way of, of getting to some German speaking country. And I stayed there for almost a year in 03. It was a little bit after college. I want to ask two questions and you're going to have to remind me because I bet you've got a better memory than me. When I forget what the second one is, later you'll say you wanted to, you, you got to interview me a little bit too on this. Um <laughs> But one question is, I just want you to give me a thumbnail. We'll do this one first about your journey out of fundamentalist, mm. Pentecostal, ORU, Christianity, your parents, kind of then tell us where you're at now. You know, I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. So, you know, the paradox oh. of irony, uh, you you don't have to come up with a, a book title. Although, you know, if you want to write a book, I'll pitch it because <laughs> whatever you do is good by me. Um but then the other question is, you, you've you got a, some reference in both what you talk about, but also your music to, I don't want to assume anything, but sort of be careful what you wish for, a moment of joy when you finally have what you want. And then it, it's like, um, you've got this thing where, you know, here's something you've always wanted, and then you get that. And I don't know what I'm referring to, whether it's a lyric in a song or something that I picked up. And I just wondered in your journey as a musician and a and a performer, whether that's what you're talking about or, you know, at what stage of life did you kind of have that thought? Am I am I picking up the thing right or wrong? Um, but let's I'm start. Cu- I'm curious as to as to what lyric may have uh, you may be pulling from. Yeah. Um, the thing is, I'm bad enough at tech. So if I start flopping around here, Ernie will, you know, send out somebody to kill me because I'll lose everything. <laughs> but you've got a, you've got a, you've got a song. You've got something where it refers maybe to some point you arrived at in your life or something, you know, where you were looking at something and you, you kind of had what you wanted. Um, oh, I had a dream. I had everything I wanted. Yeah. That's a Billie Eilish song. Yes, I know, but you perform it. Yes. <laughs> and I want to know whether you chose that because it reflects something in your journey. Yeah. And whether that fits in with your own spiritual journey of your kind of coming out or whatever. So that's a convoluted, dumb way to ask you about your journey. But I thought maybe you picked that song because it reflected something in your own life. Well, that song really spoke to me um, in r- relation to really uh, my trajectory of the last several years. 
of developing the online following that I have because uh, I do, like I said, a series called The Breakdown. And these are kind of like little yeah. mini docs, I guess. And I've been watching like, them, by the way, and I love your commentaries, but that's a different thing. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's And it's that has been the thing, weirdly, that has garnered kind of the, the biggest audience for me which is why I'm so appreciative that you have stopped and actually invested in the music because now it feels like this sort of, you know, tug and push and pull between uh, the commentary versus the music. And it's like, well, this is actually what I do. The music is that that's, that's what I do. Right. And, but it's been a little bit difficult to, I mean, my audiences have definitely increased at my shows and it's been beneficial. There's no doubt at my mantra is there's no downside to audience building. So it has definitely pulled more people into the music. Um, But that everything I wanted uh, reference, it, it really did connect with me because I have always felt like there was an audience out there for me. And I remember looking to my husband at the beginning of the pandemic and I'm like, my audience is there. I I feel like there are people that I'm supposed to connect with. There is an audience out there for me, but I just feel like I haven't reached them yet. We just have not found each other, Mm -hmm. but I am going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out how to connect with them. And so it was a very purposeful thing to start putting myself out there and just speaking because there was so much I wanted to say. Like the 2020 was just, I was exploding inside. Um, so I felt like what I was saying and and um, putting out into the world was just an extension of of who I am, just like the music is. So for me, those two things come from very much come from the same place. Mm. Um, and so but watching that explode in the way it does, if you're going to get online and talking about issues of race and culture yeah. and, you know, <laughs> hegemony and, you know, all religion, all of the things that people tend to, to hold on to. Um, and, and sometimes resent being, um, enlightened about, I guess, um, it just, it was so much more than what I could have expected. It was wonderful. There was so much, so many positive things have come from it, Uh, but I would say equal negative things have come from it. I mean, just the torrent of online hatred, the pushback, the trolls, the threats, the violence being called the N-word more times than I ever have in my life and the inboxes. And it's just- And that's you know, because, of the com- because of the commentary. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Because because of just talking about race online, educating around race and giving, you know, just, just commentary, opinion pieces, video essays, whatever it is. And, and uh, the pushback is tremendous. And so that I think is what probably drew me to that song of just like, I had a dream, I had everything I wanted, you know, but yeah. there is this element of it, of it being potentially a, a nightmare if you allow it to. to yeah, be- because you're given the voice and then all of a sudden here, you know, here's the other half of the, by yeah. the way, the good, news, the good news and bad news is going to be okay. Now we hate you, but mm-hmm. you, you do have a platform. Right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. But and talk to me, you mentioned your husband and, and, and COVID and everything. Give us as much little personal insight into your your life every day, you know, who who's part of your life. Um, you know, I tend to write about these things as an author. A lot of my stuff is uh, biographical, even my fiction I draw on my own life. So I I tend to be very open with things. I'm not assuming you want to be, so I won't ask any specific questions. But tell me a little bit about yourself personally in terms of um, you've talked about your parents a little bit day-to-day right now, sort of how do you find your personal life? What's going on? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor 
and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, like I said, we moved to Philly, my husband and I, I we're just kind of getting comfortable with this whole, like, just being open and kind of talking about our lives. Cause I think with the people that I really love and I follow and I pay attention to, I love to hear those personal stories. I love to hear who they are and where they come from in addition to the work that they do. But I just kind of assume that people don't care about that with me. And I think that's a, that's an incorrect assumption. So I'm trying to get better about just, you know, allowing people into that process a little bit, um, a window into our lives. So we live in Philadelphia Mm-hmm. Um, he worked for, he, he's a musician. He's a bass player. He's my, my bass player, but he's so much more than that, but he, uh, is also my manager. And so we have done this music thing together since we met way back in Nashville in 20, 2004, good Lord. Um, and so he is also a radio DJ. He's done that for, um, since he was in his teens, And he finally got what he would have thought of as his dream job at WBGO, which is a jazz radio station in um, in the New York area. It's based. Yeah, no, I know it. I listened to it. Yeah. And so he he was a a DJ with them during the pandemic and then they had some layoffs. And so after that, WRTI here in Philly reached out to him. And so then we moved here last year. And so that's the reason for me being being located in Philly, not any particular um, reason. But I, you know, I spend most of my time right here in my office. And how just long between... have you guys been together? Oh, good Lord. Oh, four or 2004. And so, what's his yeah, name? His name is Greg Bryant. And okay, he, Bryant. He's, yeah, in addition to being a DJ on WRTI, he's also on uh, Sirius XM's Real Jazz Station. So sometimes he goes by the Watchman. I'm not sure. He goes by the Watchman on one station versus the other. But and yeah, if you plays listen to bass, And he plays yeah. the bass. Mm-hmm. When he's bass you up. Because I was going to ask you, I know I'm jumping around here, but I was going <laughs> to ask you, one of the things that struck me about the pieces I have heard of yours was how good the musical quality was of the backup and the musicianship was kind of stunning. Oh, yeah. Because for someone, for a singer that you don't know about, it's like, how how do you get, how do you put that together? I, I mean, it obviously helps, but, you know, you come across, your star quality is right there. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, this, she can sing. And then you're saying, and, and this is really good. You know, the 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 band, I guess, the, or the, or yeah. the musicians um, are really good. So I'm curious about that. Does that come because of, of his connections? Yes. Because he's a musician? Yes. Because I was just thinking, you know, that's part of that. Who the hell is she? <laughs> Listen to the music. You know, I've never heard of her and she's brilliant. And then the guys playing with her are brilliant. Like who, you know, yeah. how how have I not known about any of this? Yeah, it's it's amazing how much can be hidden, honestly. Um, and we're, you know, making strides, I think, into um, introducing ourselves to more of the jazz community and to, to more people who who love this music. Um, but it it is 100% because of of Greg's guidance. I think that 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 our music is at a level where you would listen to it and go, well, this sounds like anything I've heard anywhere, you know, at the level of, 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 um, 
of, of any great music that I've heard anywhere else. That's because of him, his his understanding, because he is a radio DJ, his understanding yeah. of like what works for radio and then his connections to the musician community and just who's, you know, who are the major players? I mean, that that album that that uh, not the album that you're speaking of with everything I wanted, but the one before it. Yeah. I mean, Cyrus Chestnut is on that. Uh, Vicente um, Archer is on that. He's a bass player who's on it. And um, you know, these are world-class musicians. If you are really, really into jazz, you sure. most of the people, Sullivan Fortner, who's a piano player, Aaron Parks, these are the major players that are on the scene where, right now. Where have you so, been recording? Where have you New been York. recording these albums? We are we are recording at a, a, a it's it's not System Suits, the Samurai uh, Hotel recording studio in Brooklyn. I'm sorry, in Queens. Yeah. Um, New York. And so these they're, you know, Gregory Porter, I don't know if you know who he is, but his albums were recorded in, in this, you know, by the same engineer, Mike Marciano. And so mm-hmm. this is all of this is Greg. Yeah. Seeking these people out, developing relationships. We've both developed relationships with them and understanding, you know, just how to put because that's a that's a skill in and of itself, how to put an album together um, that that comes off as credible because you can be talented yeah. and um, just you know, the history of what, what good Lord of, of the, the kind of music that he has to sift through and listen, listen to, to determine what is radio worthy yeah, that, yeah. you know, that, that tunes your ears to like, Hey, this is, you know, these are the decisions you have to make in order to create music that feels uh, palatable for jazz audiences. And so those are all, you know, skills that we've honed over many years and we've made mistakes. When, you know? when did you start, when did you and your husband, um, like, did you begin getting serious? Cause you've been together a while. So were you singing and doing music seriously before you met or after you met, he said, Hey, you're really good. You ought to do more with this. How did that all unfold? Well, I grew up, like I said, my father was a music minister yeah. Um, and my mother was a singer. And so they, you know, they honed what we do. They taught us to sing and they taught us to sing harmony. That's how I grew up singing yeah. harmony with my six brothers and sisters. And so our father would use us as his little choir and he would take us with him when he would travel uh, to different cities. His mother was a um, minister and had um, governance over several satellite churches. So he would take us to those churches and we would be his little backup choir. I mean, my two older sisters and then as more brothers and sisters came, we were like the little Von Trapp children, you know, with tea with jam and bread. And we were um, just ministering. So that was the life that we had. We grew up with music and we grew up with ministry. And mm-hmm. so that was most of my training until I moved away to Switzerland. And that's when I started to write. I started to kind of find that voice. And that all had to do with kind of that deconstruction process of breaking away from your family and what you know, and, you know, Oral Roberts University and my grandmother and the church and my father. And like, okay, what's my voice? What do I have to say? What do I want to put out in the world? And so at that time I was listening to, I mean, I had, you know, come away from just the exclusively gospel world at that point, but I was listening to people like India Ari and I was listening to Stevie Wonder and I was listening to James Taylor and John Denver and Gordon Lightfoot and Karen Carpenter, just all the music that I, you know, was just soaking up and absorbing at that time and finding my voice. So then I started writing in Switzerland. And I came back with a group of songs when I came back to Tulsa to my family. And I said, this is what I've been doing. And, you know, I, I don't know, are these songs any good? And and my family really, they gave me just some tremendous feedback. And they, you know, as, as the kiddies say, they, they gassed me up, you know, they hyped me up and they made me feel really good about what I was doing. And I was, I remember being afraid to let my father hear my songs because we had grown up in this world where you just, you did not 
mess with secular music. You just, that yeah. was just not allowed. And so I introduced him to a song called I Dare Not Dream. And the song was basically him. It was what he had, it was, you know, he had taught me to write in this way. And I could not play the song. I'm a piano player as well, but I couldn't play the song because I thought, this is him. It's so much him. And I gave it to him and I said, Daddy, can you play this song for me? Um, can because I want to record it. And he executed it so perfectly, I didn't have to tell him anything. And so that was a really cool moment of us being able to just kind of bring our musical sensibilities together and him affirming me and saying, yes, I know how to interpret the song because it is me. This is what I've given you. And so I got all those songs together and I knew that I wanted to do something musical with my life. And so I went to Nashville right after Switzerland. So that was when I moved here in uh, or there in 2004. And I met Greg there shortly thereafter. He had um, his father is a pastor in the AME church. And so there was a woman named Jolene Kay, who um, someone told me to meet. They're just like, you need to meet this woman. If you want to get involved with music, I want to write. Mm -hmm. And they said, if you want to meet uh, meet people in music, this lady knows everybody. Get together with her and she knows everybody. So I reached out to this lady, random woman named Jolene Kay. And she said, well, my pastor's son is a bass player and he wants me to come hear him play. So do you want to come with me to go hear him play? Mm -hmm. I had never met this woman before. And we went together to go hear him play. And that was where Greg and I met at just some little dive, little club he was playing at. And I talked to him about what I wanted to do, that I wanted to just put together a little group and just kind of start singing and, you know, do my music and do standards. And, and that was where it all began in 2004 with him. Yeah, you know, um, I was wondering if these days with the music you have out, if you perform and if you do perform, you take these same, I was going to say your your backup band, but I guess you can't describe your husband as your backup band. <laughs> and you take your agent, manager, sometime musician with you. Right. <laughs> uh, or do you like, or haven't you been doing performance? Because, you know, it, it sounds, I mean, you, you're one of these people and they play in a way where you're thinking, you know, they could just stand up and perform this. This isn't being mixed on a computer. You're actually doing the number. And I know right. you're all real musicians and you can just feel that. And so I just wonder whether you're you've been performing or whether this is mostly in the studio. What are you what you've been up to? Oh yeah, in in the jazz world, it's like yeah, you you it's you you can't just be a studio musician um, no, in the jazz. Not. It's yeah, it's all about getting out in front of audiences. So yeah, from uh, the moment that we met way back in two thousand four, our our primary focus was getting out and playing. So I've played. You know, this year I've done Dizzy's Jazz Club in New York. We've done Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. I've done um, the Nashville Jazz Workshop, um, Rudy's Jazz Club. So we've done, yeah, I've, I've, I have performed all over the place, all over the world and continue to do that. I have a performance coming up in um, Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm going to be on the 17th of December, where I'm going to be doing um, more of what I want to do in the future, which is like a hybrid like a talk where I'll be discussing some of these kind of social and cultural issues and then performing music that kind of relates to where is that going to be? what I'm discussing. That is, I'm not sure what the name of the actual venue is going to be, but I'm going to be in conversation with a musician uh, named Joe Alterman, who's a piano player in the well, Atlanta When you find area. out, tell Ernie, my producer, so we can promote it along with this. Okay, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really- Or anything else you want to promote. 
I appreciate that. Yeah, we're <laughs> this is more of what I'll be doing next next year and beyond, which is taking Good. the commentary that I've been doing online and kind of combining that with the music. And that is exciting for me. I'll be doing a presentation on um, Nancy Wilson, uh, the, the jazz singer Nancy Wilson sure. next year at the Nashville Jazz Workshop, where I'll teach about her life and then we'll turn around and do a few songs and then we'll talk more about her life, that kind of you know, that dual performance kind of stuff. So more of that in 2024. I'm I'm super looking forward to that. I want to get to Ernie. My producer sent a question to ask you, but I just want to reintroduce you um, for folks who are listening to this. This is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. It is a podcast. I am Frank Schaefer. And I'm talking to Dara Star Tucker, who is a musician and a singer and a writer and a commentator online. And um, I am an enormous fan of her music. Uh, discovered her because she interviewed me for another podcast a, a couple weeks ago. And then I invited her back here onto my podcast. But um, if you like this interview and you're interested in it, please like it in the online sense. And also you might want to go to Substack and subscribe to my commentary. It has to be said. Uh, but if if you want to pass this on to people who are interested, I'd be grateful. So please do. Um, the question that Ernie had for you, uh, was your journey out of ORU. So where are you now? Because we never got there, or maybe you're just protecting your privacy and you don't want to say where you're at now, not in the evangelical sense. Are you still a believer, but just in the kind of philosophical sense of, you know, I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God in the sense of the paradox of having been raised one way, but journeyed somewhere else holding on to certain things as a psychological need. I just wondered how you see your journey now. Obviously, it's a snapshot of just today while we're talking. Um, I'm not pinning you down for the rest of your life, but where are you at? And actually, sort of where is your husband at? Because you're both church people. That's your background. You're on some sort of a journey. So where are you at without losing your, making even more people mad at you? <laughs> oh, I'm used to making people mad. Another yeah. of my mantras is that I, I try to remind myself every day that it's my job to disappoint the right people. Yeah. And so a lot of why I never, why a lot of why I think the deconstruction journey has taken me so long and it's taken me so long to be outspoken about a lot of things around race and culture is that I was, I was so afraid of disappointing people. Mm. Um, and so, no, I, I don't mind talking about that. I don't talk about it a whole lot, primarily because I don't like to, get into senseless debates with religious folks. That's just not a favorite thing sure. of mine to do. And if you're going to talk about religion, you just, you have to be ready for the onslaught. And I already deal with the onslaught with race. And so I don't, sure. I don't poke the bear as much, not because I don't want to talk about it, but because it's just, it's just a whole other thing, but no, I don't yeah. mind talking about it at all. Um, I don't know that I even have a label for for where I am at this point. I definitely would call myself a, a deconstructed or deconstructing um, Christian, if people don't want to call me Christian, and if a Christian says, well, you're not a true believer and you, you know, I, I would not call myself the word that was really used in our circles more, more, even more so than Christian was believer. Are you a believer? Right. right. Um, and if you ask, if you use that standard to judge who I am or where I am, I cannot say that, that my beliefs measure up to that standard of being a believer. And that probably is, is a more difficult thing to acknowledge or to admit or to speak out loud 
than to say, well, you know, you can call me a Christian. Don't call me a Christian. You know, I, I don't really care. That's just a label. But to say that I, I have to admit to myself and to other people, I am not a true believer. That is harder. And um, so I, I, it just was the worst thing that you could possibly be growing up where there was just nothing, nothing worse than being an, an unbeliever because you were just, you were utterly cast out. And that was a decision that you had made and, you know, woe be unto you. That, that was how it was in our circles. And so to get to a place where I can acknowledge that within myself and say, you know, I'm okay, I'm all right. I'm going to be, I am not, um, in, in danger of, of being consumed by hell's flames for saying that I am not a true believer, um, I'm, I'm going to be all right. It's kind of funny that we're having this conversation, not funny. It's ironic that we're having this conversation a day after Carlton Pearson passed away. I don't know if you know who Carlton Pearson is. He was a, an evangelical minister. I say even evangelical. He came out of the church of God in Christ. And he was one of the ministers who was very, very popular. He's, uh, Tulsa is where he was based. Right. And uh, I've had, you know, my family has had a long history with Carlton Pearson, and he was a huge supporter of my grandmother's ministry. And he was a friend of my father's and a friend of my uncle's. And mm -hmm. um, he was he was influential on me just in the sense of just being more outspoken about who you are and where you're coming from. And so at this point, I am I am still all just about asking uh, the questions and admitting that there is probably no such thing as certitude around most things in particularly around religion and around theology and around doctrine. Um, the idea that there is certitude or that we have to have that kind of certainty um, is, is just, it's a bit of an irritating thing to me. I think it's, it's the cause for a lot of, a lot of extremism and absolutism, which I think are the ultimate enemies, regardless of, of, of what the playing field is extremism, mm -hmm. absolutism, a zealotry that, you know, those, those things have become to me, the great, the great evils of the world. Cause I think they can just, they can, they can help to explain why we are dealing with most of the, uh, most of the, the evil that we're dealing with in the world. So um, yeah, I don't know that I, I have a, a label. I, I would love to write a book. You mentioned writing a book and, you know, I would love to write a book. I, I have a title for the book. I have an idea for the book. And I feel like if I do sit down and actually begin to write, I will probably come up with much, you know, a much better framework for explaining where I am. But I think, you know, you you probably can understand enough about where I am just from listening to me kind of. Yeah. And, you know, what you're talking about in terms of zealotry and, you know, fanaticism, Ernie, my producer, and I have a, a, a new sort of mantra we pass back and forth. I think he came up with it which is like, you know, our little stamp as no fanatics. I yeah. mean, we're, we're done with that. And, yeah. and I, so you're, you're reading from our script here. So now let's go in, let's segue from that into the subject matter that you've been covering in some of your commentaries. We don't have to go there for a long time, but just run a few bias what you've been saying about different things. Like what? Give us two or three, four things that you've been talking about. Uh, well, the, the one that I put out most recently, well, yesterday, I, I just did, I'm kind of was taking a little bit of a pulling back just a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but I just put out another breakdown yesterday on um, the history of German POWs. I mean, I'm just all over the place. My podcast is called I'm All Over the Place, but I put out one yesterday about the history of German POWs during World War II and kind of told a story about Lena Horn and how she was brought to you know sing for the soldiers at a camp in Arkansas, I believe it was. Uh, during a USO tour. 
in probably 1944 or something. And I didn't even know until recently, like I said, my degree is in uh, German studies, but I didn't know until recently that German POWs were being brought to the United States and they were being housed here in Mm. detention camps all through the United States. But a lot of them were concentrated in the South. And uh, Lena Horne performed for um, a group of soldiers in Arkansas and came out to find that the German POWs had been sat up front where the black soldiers had been segregated to sitting and they were sitting in the back. And she came out and she couldn't believe what she she saw. And she she walked to the back of the room and sang for the black soldiers and turned her back on the POWs. And then she left and, and refused to finish the performance. But then I went into a whole kind of thing about how well the German POWs were treated during World War II, how they were given preferential treatment even over black soldiers and were treated very differently from the uh, Japanese detainees that were um, segregated at that time. So um, so things like that, right? Just I like telling stories, especially about how how entertainment, how classic film, television and music intersect with race and culture and kind of telling stories about race and culture from a perspective of arts and entertainment so that people can kind of contextualize these things and understand how race and culture have impacted the art and entertainment that we that we love. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'll just tell uh, I'll I'll just do little little uh, opinion pieces or commentary. Like I did a, a piece uh, called, which is what I want to call the book that I would love to write, uh, called "The uh, Intoxicating Allure of White Approval." So growing up in a lot of uh, white spaces, as I did once my father broke away from the Pentecostal uh, Holiness Church, um, the way that black people and other people of color are trained to basically perform for the white gaze and the ways that we can become self-hating and we can um, kind of be almost, we, we can have an even worse impact than uh, a white racist could have, you know, towards our own people because we are, you know, we're hustling overtime to try and gain that white approval and, you know, what that, what that does to you, what that does to your spirit, your soul, and, you know, how that is played out on the, you know, on the national stage, you want, you see people like uh, Candace Owens and Tim Scott, and it's like, what, how did they get there? You know, how does this happen? How does, how does a a black person end up fighting with a a white liberal um, where the white liberal is trying to convince them that, that structural racism exists? How does that happen? So, you know, having those kinds of conversations, that's that's the type of thing that I really I really enjoy um, addressing with my with my pieces. And and by the way, we will post uh, for those of you listening. You don't have to try to remember all these names of the commentaries uh, and all the rest of it, because everything that our guest does, Dara Star Tucker does anything she does, her music, where you can find it, her commentaries, where you can find them. Um, and whatever else she wants you to know about, Ernie will post everywhere this stuff is with links to everything, uh, because we want to promote everything that we can that you're doing, Dara, um, across the board. So just come up with whatever you want Ernie to put out there, and we'll have everybody going off and watching or seeing these things. How long are those commentaries generally? I mean, not you don't have a specific, but what do they run like? Generally, anywhere from three to seven minutes would be average. The one that I put out yesterday was about four. It was not quite four minutes. How many are out there now? You said how many? Yeah. How many off the top of your head? Thousands. Yeah. I've probably, oh, no, 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 not that many. No, no, I'm only kidding. I've I've probably done 
I don't know. It's it's got to be over a hundred, probably about one hundred and fifty. I would say. Yeah. And how long have you been doing those? I mean, obviously they're a function of the modern technology and the the interwebs. But like, other than that limitation, like, have you been? When was the first time you did these? I started the breakdown series. It had to have been right around September of twenty twenty. And how about twenty twenty? 2021, I'm sorry, September 2021, the actual breakdown started. What about your podcast? The podcast I've been doing a little over a year. Okay, because we're going to link to everything. I mean, I find which, you know, the ones I've watched are so interesting and they they just coincidentally cover so many topics that I'm interested in personally mm-hmm. and also have commented on in a kind of a weird way. Um, I think we've been mind melding <laughs> somehow before I met you. This was all foreordained. Um, right. Uh, you know, when my fiery chariot shows up to take me away, maybe you'll be on board too, because it seems we've been thinking <laughs> along similar lines. Um, so, which is always a really nice discovery. Um, so I'm going to switch gears here and ask you something odd, but now I'm talking as an artist and a writer, uh, and a creator to an artist, a writer and a creator. So this is just off the record happens to be on a podcast, but I want you to do this. You know, when you talk about mixing your music with commentary, Mm -hmm. I immediately think, oh, she's kind of doing what I'm doing because I'm a writer. And one of the ways you sell books is by having an online presence because everybody wants to know, publishers used to want to know, can you write? And now all they say is, how big is your thing? You know, you're online. How many followers do you have? I mean, it's a totally devalued currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I was, I wrote a first novel in 1989. It was published in 90. And back in those days, you know, when Macmillan and Penguin and everybody picked me up and it became an international bestseller, it's, it's, I like to think it's because I'm a good writer and mm-hmm. it was reviewed in all the newspapers. There used to be a thing called newspapers. I don't know if a youngster like you remembers that. <laughs> They were, you could read them and they had book review sections. And then there were bookstores that invited you to do readings. There was a thing. Mm -hmm. And now it's like all this thing. So now in all seriousness, here's my question to you. Do you do this other stuff to help break out in terms of people recognizing that what you really are is a brilliant musician and singer? And if the best thing could happen and someone came along and Frank Schaefer was this, you know, impresario who could just push a button, which I can't. Sorry. <laughs> and all your worries go away. And here's your here's your record deal. And um, uh, and I could make it all happen. Would you still do this other stuff? And I and I and I'll be honest. I I think about two thirds of what I do, other than my podcast. By the way, I'm being very sincere about this, and not just because I'm interviewing you, but I so love doing my podcast with Ernie producing it that I think if I did get that billion dollars plus, you know, a contract for six new books and no no more need to have an online anything. I would still do the podcast because I love these conversations because yeah. otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah. But other than that, the commentaries and all this stuff, I don't know, would I do any of that stuff? Uh, probably not. Because <laughs> I'm just doing it to keep the whole show going because you got to right. do all this shit because publishers want to know how many followers you have and all this. And it's crap. It's stupid. Mm-hmm. How about you? Do you feel this is taking you away from your music? And in the best of all worlds, you and your husband would just hole up in a studio and turn out hit albums and 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 let the commentary take care of themselves. Someone else can worry about 
all that stuff. You're just a musician. Oh, I hope my husband is watching this. I really hope he's watching because it's so funny. We just had this conversation this morning. This is the exact conversation that we had this morning. Mm. Uh, From my perspective, uh, I would absolutely continue to do the breakdown. I would probably just have a couple of curated pieces that I do every month that I have help with, you know, someone helping me edit because I don't have anyone helping to edit or do anything with them. So there's a whole lot about what I do now that I wouldn't do in the way that I do it now. And I would probably do a lot less of it if someone just could snap their fingers and say, you know, we're not really worried about the activity of it, the numbers of it, the, you know, the little that I do earn earn online and all of that. Um, I would probably continue to do um, breakdowns because I just love storytelling so much. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. kind of the, the, you know, that's the bedrock of what I, of what I do, regardless of what, if I'm singing, if I'm writing, if I'm uh, doing online pieces, it's all storytelling. Um, and so I love, love, love telling these stories. I'm constantly thinking of, of different pieces that I can do that I just don't even have time for. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would absolutely continue to do the breakdown series. Um, would my husband want me to keep doing the breakdown series? Not necessarily his whole goal. And it was so funny that he said exactly what it is that you just um, inferred, which was his whole goal is it all is serving the purpose of getting the music out there and getting before audiences, because that's his, that's his favorite thing to do. Let's just get on the road. Let's do the high level performing arts series, you know, the you know, the T-Packs, the, the whatever they are, um, the symphony centers and and just you traveling and doing performing at the Met or the, you know, the Skirmerhorn in Nashville, wherever it is. He that's just all about what it is. And for me, that's a lot of what it is. It really is. And and I do have that um, that constant conflict within myself of is the music getting enough attention? Is the breakdown, you know, am I, am I putting what I should be putting out into the world? What is the ultimate goal? What's, what's the, what, where's the landing spot? Where is it that I really want to be? And I, you know, I know for a fact, I would continue to do the breakdown, but ultimately if I felt that I had this, I guess this is a little bit of a, it's a, it's a tweaking of your question. If I felt that I had the respect that I would want in the world and the acknowledgement that I want in the world, what would that respect be kind of based on? Where would that emanate from? And the music and the writing specifically, my songwriting specifically would be where that launching point would come from. And then hopefully people would appreciate, you know, the other things that I do, but my songwriting is the most important thing to me. Songwriting and performing those songs or just the writing, like if other people were singing them. I would be happy if other people were singing my songs. I'd be happy to have the opportunity to do performances. Like I used to do a whole lot of dinner, you know, dinner uh, music, cocktail music type gigs. I don't have to do any of that type of performing anymore ever in my life. So the type of performances that I've done this year at some really high level jazz clubs, and we've tamped down our performances. I only did probably five or six shows this year, but they were all really high quality. The people that were there were there to see me. A lot of them knew me from my online work, but they were there for a specific purpose. And it really felt like, you know, there was a a, a symbiosis and, you know, those kinds of of performances. If I can, if I can do just, you know, 12 of those performances a year, I'll be fine. Um, But songwriting and people really understanding uh, what I've put out there and what I have to say, even if other people are performing those songs, that's, that's, that's where it's at for me. Well, next performance that you think is going to be good and your husband and you are going to do somewhere that I can get to and Jeannie can get to. Tell me, give me a couple of days notice because I'm coming. 
Where are you located? Just north of Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've done the beehive out there. And uh, yeah, well, I, I got, I, I'll go to New York. I'll come down and watch you. Okay. Or or Washington or something. I'd make I I like a three star Michelin rated restaurant. <laughs> it's worth the journey. I'm coming. Two star, not so much. Three star, yes. I'm making the journey, and you're worth the journey. I would love Thank to do it. So but you know, if I can dive in, and we're angels fear to tread, and I know my producer Ernie will be shaking his head and say, "Oh, what's he going to do now?" But if I can just, um, you know, not being pretentious or anything, but speak to you as God would speak to you. Your husband's right. You, you know, your voice should be heard. And I don't mean your political narration. Your commentaries are great. They're better than most people's commentaries. But you, you're there. There. See, the cat is a sign. I love that. Just as I say, that was a sign from above. the cat came to confirm <laughs> what I was talking about. I think the cat took you a little out of focus took here. My focus out. It's this is an easy I love that that I sp- I'm talking to you as God would talk to you and a cat shows up to like maybe if we can get the camera to just focus on my hand. But anyway, while I'm blathering on and the camera says you can mess with the f- focus, but y- you know, in, in listening to you sing and the group the the group of a uh, uh, perfect now by the way, the group of players that you have around you um, I have friends who are singers, an opera fr- singer who's well-known, who's a good friend of mine. And of course, I'm all too aware that unlike an old guy like me that's 71 and I'm still writing, um, you know, my ability as a writer, if my brain is still functioning, doesn't go away. But of course, your voice will change as you get older. Mm-hmm. That window is not forever. And yeah. I'm, I am annoyed that I hadn't already heard of you. I mean, you you have a uniquely gorgeous voice. Thank you. Like I'm being really serious now. And it's like, you know, I would, I you know, if I could snap the fingers and make it so, I would say, hey, here's 10 years clear with nothing helping except performing and writing songs because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you need to be heard. I just think your friend, your voice is fabulous. And the music, the songs you're singing, the ones you cover, but but the stuff you're writing as well, I really love it. And you've managed to put together musical backing, if I can call the musicians, because they're not backing you. That that you know, they the music that you're you've got going with your voice is so good. It, it in its own right, it's worth listening to. That if I can just as a total outsider who's only just met you with no axe to grind at all, I mean, just this is like a conversation with somebody you meet once on a plane and never see again, but I'm just telling you um, every fork in the road you come to that you don't have to take that where there's a choice between being heard, singing more or less, take the fork in the road that leads to more singing. Well, because I just think it's, you have a gorgeous voice. I mean, I'm, I was literally stunned by it. And I kept listening, thinking she can't be this good. And then I would listen to something else and I think, God damn it, she is this good. <laughs> and then the bat, you know, the, the music that's with you, the songs you're choosing and the the the, the musical quality of it is just dev- devastating. I teared up the first time I heard you sing. Wow. I couldn't believe that I'd met you so casually. And then you were saying, oh, and I do music too. And I didn't know what to expect. Um <laughs> And then it was like, she, what do you mean she does music too? So, 
Well, I just need to carry you in my back pocket whenever we reach out to bookers and promoters and whomever. Well, this, just listen to this guy. He says we're good because <laughs> everyone doesn't agree with you, unfortunately. Well, there are stupid people out there and <laughs> just give me a list and you will never hear from them again. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that either. I don't know who they are, but they're idiots <laughs> because you're gorgeous. The the voice that is just, it's like falling into a, you know, a warm bath or sliding down a velvet curtain. I'm telling you, listening mm -hmm. to you sing is really something. I, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't encounter a ton of encouragement around the music and when I put it out there, it just it doesn't do what the what the breakdowns do. So I, I question that a lot. I question whether the, you know whether this is really relevant. Is it something that should be put on the back burner? Is is the world kind of telling me no? This is what we want from you. You know, you have to think about practical things like that. It's like if well, I you can do you can do both. Mm -hmm. Do both. I'm sure of it. One can lead to another. But oh, yeah. I would just say, as an as a lay person observing from the outside. Um, there are other people making commentaries, but your voice is unique. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I really, I really, mean, I really mean it. Okay, enough of that. Let me <laughs> let me read you a question from Ernie. Uh, art is the heart of so much that makes life matter. Um, how do you stay true to your artistic voice while also being someone who lifts your quote citizen voice to talk about the uncomfortable truths and difficult circumstances we face? So how do I? make sure to stay true to my artistic voice? Yeah, while at the same time being a political agitator, <laughs> sort of bomb, bomb thrower like I am. And Well, I don't have, you know, I've never had the benefit of having, I mean, we've recently just signed with a kind of a smaller label outside of, um, in, in Nashville. So I, I just haven't really had the, the pressure of having a lot of people to answer to. I mean, I definitely, Greg, Greg and I definitely have had, you know, our battles uh, creatively, um, but I, I haven't had a label to answer to. I haven't had a lot of managers and agents and, you know, all of that. I, I really theoretically can, can put out what I, I choose to put out. And then that goes for my commentary as well. I don't have a boss. There's no one saying, you know, we got to, you know, we have to put out this many pieces a week, or we don't want to offend these people or those people. And, that's that's a benefit. You know, I haven't I haven't made a ton of money doing what I do, but the benefit is that I don't really have people to answer to. And like I said, I when it comes to my own personal journey, my my mantra is like wake up every day ready to disappoint the right people. Yeah. You have to understand that your job at certain times is not not to intentionally piss people off, but your job at certain times is to understand that people are not everyone that you want to approve of you is not going to approve of you. And, you know, as a woman, as a black person, as a Christian and all of the things, um, uh, it, it, that's hard. I every, you know, every one of those identifiers is, is another layer of pressure where I, that I received growing up that told me you are supposed to be approved of, especially being a black person in white spaces, you have to do these things and twist yourself into a pretzel in order to be approved of by the world. And if you aren't doing these things, you are not worthy. You're not worth anything. You have failed. You have done the opposite of what you're supposed to do in this life. And so trying to retrain your brain to listen to the voice that's coming from inside of you and allow that voice to just pr be projected out and to be heard in the world regardless 
of what uh, people that you love and admire and that you want to love and admire you, regardless of what those people have to say, it's that's a daily battle. That's a daily internal uh, battle. But I have to once I once that thing clicked, and it was probably um, right after my parents passed. That thing clicked where that just told me like, hey, if you don't figure out how to be okay disappointing people, you, you're you're gonna risk living your life at just the edge of something, the edge of what you really should be. And once I figured out, oh, oh, I'm supposed to disappoint people. <laughs> I'm supposed to be pissing people off. Oh, okay. The fact that I don't want to go over this line is the thing that has caused me to feel that I'm not, I'm just not launching out into the world the way I feel like I'm supposed to. So that thing clicking was the start of a lot. That was the start of a lot. It was a start of the the trajectory that my life is on right now, which I feel like, you know, for better or worse, it's very turbulent. It's very topsy-turvy, up and down and unpredictable. But I am so much happier with my life, you know, now than I was five years ago. Mm. Well, you know, being an artist yourself and then your husband, of course, being a musician and an artist and so forth, you know, your your path together. And this is where I actually know what I'm talking about because I'm an artist and a writer. And my mm -hmm. wife and I have always been, you know, self-unemployed and done our own things. <laughs> uh, so I totally get that. Um, and also the, the trajectory out of my Christian background and the journey there. So you and I have so many things in common. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I do hope that we can find a way to help um, get this, these albums and your performances to a bigger audience. And I would love to find a way to help that. I wish I could click the fingers and make it all just so. I'll be racking my brain and Ernie will post links to everything. If if there's if, if you could guide people towards some of your music uh that's easy to find, well tell give us give us a couple titles to go look for first, and then Ernie will put links to everything. But what you know, I was very struck by the songs that I hit, but I would, you know. If someone's starting on their Dara Star Tucker journey, we're, <laughs> on the commentaries, we'll link to everything. Give us a little hint where you would like them to begin on their music. Just, hey, if you're going to listen to one thing, listen to this. Oh, well, what a lovely question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. If Nobody's I... ever liked your music as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> I have had a divine revelation. I shall be your prophet. I'm going to be your John the Baptist. I need one. <laughs> I'm going to give what? it a shot. Uh, until I can find an agent, I, 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 I could use a John the Baptist. If I could recommend one song for people to listen to, it is an out. It's from an album that I put out in 2014 called um, "The Sun Season," and that whole album is very sunny and it's very bright and it's very like, hey, the world is is wonderful. Um, but there is one song about just kind of my my personal kind of aspirations, and it it kind of references a little bit of my um, background in in faith and my religious upbringing mm -hmm. and my journey kind of to myself within that. And it's a song called "Giants." And it's from the sun season from 2014. It's a song called Giants. It's one of my favorite songs that I have written. Hmm. Um, another song that, that is a favorite of mine that I've written is called Miss Me. And I think that's from my 2019 album uh, called The Seven Colors, hmm. a song called Miss Me. And for some reason, that song has just been in my head a lot lately. 
Um, and probably the third song, I guess I'm recommending a lot of melancholy stuff. The third song I would recommend was a, there's a song on, on the most recent album, which is a self-titled album. The album is called Dara Star Tucker, the one that came out this year. There's a song, a fun song called If You Asked Me To. And, and I, I like that one because it's just, you know, it's peppy and sweet. Um, but the last song on this current album, and it's called Scars Freedom. It was kind of um, um, just a free-flowing extemporaneous kind of thing that we did. And it was basically a comment um, on the opening song of the album. So there's a song called Scars that opens up the album. And at the end, we just came back into the studio and said, you know, we just wanted to do something different with it. And our piano player just started playing this figure. And it reminds me, and we just all kind of got in there with him. And it reminds me of the services that I came up with where, you know, my father would play a spiritual song and people would just, you know, he would either sing something over that or someone else would. And it was just, it would develop into this really rich and beautiful thing, this kind of prophetic, you know, music that my father used to do. It reminds me of some of the stuff that I, I came up with. So Scars Freedom on the most recent album, it's the final track on, on the Dara Star Tucker album. And we, we always run into something and Ernie, my producer can talk, don't hang up after we finish here because Ernie will want to talk to you for a while, figure mm-hmm. some stuff out. But, um, we run into this crazy thing where, you know, we put something on Facebook and then there's all the or YouTube. And then if it includes a piece of music, we get a notice back saying copyrighted material. You can't put musical stuff in there. We always have this crazy stuff. All these algorithms are just driving us nuts. I, you, you know, like, you, 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 you know, you know how the whole stupid thing out there works. Um and then all of a sudden, it's like you're getting this notice saying you can't do that. So we'll do everything we can with the music itself, except what we can't do. And Ernie will have to figure that out. But we don't want this whole thing to be un, you know, taken down because by mistake, we include some music and then their stupid algorithm says you can't use music, you know. That I, kind of right. But other than that, we'll we'll do what we can and direct everybody to it. And we want you to come back and talk to us. And as Ernie said, um, come back and keep disappointing the right people right into 2024. <laughs> I plan to. And we posted to links to all that. And we've, we're, we're, we've posted links to all that in our chat and so forth and so on. And then the other thing is, is um, and Ernie can talk to you about this, uh, make sure you send Ernie links to things you're saying on your commentary, whatever you, what do you call it? Not burning boats or something. Uh, the the breakdown. Yeah, the breakdown. Because if you've got a three or six or five minute one that you would like to guest, for us to guest host, just send it to us and we'll put it on all our places. Okay, I appreciate that. Because we have, you know, we have followers too who, who need to find what you're doing interesting. So we can do that. And then if you think of things we can do with the music or you're doing something and you want us to help promote it. And if we can figure out a way between Ernie and you and your husband and whatever to play some of your music, mm-hmm. then let's do that too. And then when you have a vinyl album, let me know so I can order it. I appreciate that. I would love to do that. I hope that happens next year. I really do. Good. Cause I like, you know, I like being an old timer. <laughs> Anything I haven't asked you, you want to talk about promote? Oh no, it's it's. it's a, I hey, it just it never ends. I'll, I'll probably send you um, the Simon and Garfunkel piece. It's probably one of my favorite pieces that I've done. I think it just very 
perfectly encapsulates what I do, the breakdown, the breakdowns that I do. But the one I did on Simon and Garfunkel is probably the commentary. You did a commentary on Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A breakdown on Simon and Garfunkel. So I'll, I'll, I'll send that to you and Ernie. When did you do that? That was earlier this year. Cause I've been scrolling through them and listening to someone. I didn't come across that. Is that on YouTube as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I don't know why that would have jumped right out at me. I I don't know why I didn't see that, but I'll I'll watch it. Well, send it to Ernie and we can we can put that up. uh, We'll post that somewhere if you like that one. Yeah, I I would love it. And I'm I'm about to that that one was on the sound of silence. And I'm about to do one on Paul Simon's Graceland. I mean, he's just one of my favorite people and his career is so rich and so varied and has so many elements and so yeah, I'm I've done um yeah, my favorite commentary I would say probably was on on him. Well, I love say- that because he was part of my growing up, you know, yeah. being 71 and all that stuff. Yeah. I was there in the day. Okay. I have Simon and Garfunkel, you know, first pressing vinyl. You know, I don't want to pull rank on you or anything. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and I bought them when I was 16, 17 years old. So like wow. this this is authentic shit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I, I love him so so much. So much. Bridge over troubled water. When Jeannie and, and Ernie's probably looking at the thing and saying, Yeah, the, why are they still talking? We're supposed to be done here, but I'm just <laughs> gonna say one more thing. When Jeannie and I met, she then all went off and kept traveling with her sister back in 79, 80 in Europe. We were 17 and 18, and we've been together ever since. So when she would go away, she would write me these letters from the road. They had a URL pass. It was her high school graduation present with her sister who had just graduated from Berkeley. And we had been listening to Bridge Over Troubled Water, which we also were listening to Abbey Road, which is the album we got together on. But anyway, so when she would go away, I would, in in a sort of a maudlin spirit of a teenage in love, wildly crazy in love with Jeannie, I would listen to the songs we had been listening to. And every time I listened to Bridge Over Troubled Water, I, I would cry like a child because I missed her so much. And I still tear up if I ever hear that song because I get this sort of weird sense of longing for her. And then I have to go, like even talking about it right now, as soon as we're done here, I'm running in to the house to make sure I can see where Jeannie is because Bridge Over Troubled Water became this I'm Missing You song, which is not what it was about, but it's a very moving song anyway. And she was my Bridge Over Troubled Water has been now for 53 years. And so it's still our song. You know, so, I recorded I recorded that song. It was on my the album before this. And it was it's it's a it's an unusual arrangement. It was done by Sullivan Fortner, who's the piano player, one of the piano players on that album. But I do have a, a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. I'm gonna listen to literally as soon as we're <laughs> off of this thing, I'm listening it's, immediately. It's quirky, it's, quirky. it's different, and, and it takes a few listens to really invest yourself in what he did with it but i mean it took me time to get my ears around it but i it's yeah it was very ambitious but my mu- that it's funny that you had mentioned that cuz that's that was one of my my mother and father's songs she said she had to make a, a film a student film for her senior year and she got a super 8 camera and she filmed my father just walking you know over bridges and in in different places there in Tulsa and that was the song that she used and this is coming from someone who did not grow up with a lot of secular music but she loved that song so much that she used him in her student film and used bridge over troubled water as the soundtrack for that film i'm sorry i didn't meet your mom cuz i was shooting super 8 millimeter films when i met jeannie <laughs> and i still have clips of those and um... Um... I think our families are sort of mystically joined at the hip. They, yes, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. 
<laughs> oh man, Dara, thank you so much. And listen, everybody, I'm being really serious. You've heard me on other podcasts. I've never talked about music people like this before, but Dara is a discovery. And please go out and find her and listen to these songs because Ernie's going to put everything up online and post it, but it's a real revelation. Uh, and and you're gonna you're gonna be asking yourself like I did, unless you already know Dara, where the hell have I been? Because this is like someone everybody should have heard of a long time ago. We're gonna have to work hard to make that happen. I appreciate that, Frank. And I, I just want to reiterate what an honor it is for me to speak to you. Just considering the history of just who your father is and the, the just how much all of that meant to me. And discovering you when I did during the pandemic, I can't say I've, I have bought your book now. I do have the, I think I have the audio version of your book. Um, cra- is it Crazy for God? Do you have an audio yeah. version of that one? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think I even read that one for the publisher. Yeah. I think, I think me I, reading it. Yeah. I just, I just bought it. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. So I can't say that I have deeply delved into your work, but Good. the commentary that I've heard you do, it has just been really it just just a, a full circle thing, like I said, discovering your father and him kind of introducing me to a bit a bit more intellectualism than what I I yeah. knew about, and just appreciating him, and yeah. getting to meet you and understanding your journey and how you've kind of come through what you have and and the investment that you had in that world. It just all it, it means so much. I I can't say how much it means to me to actually be able well, to meet you and have conversation you. with you. Thank you, but like uh, you're you know that's all that's great, but I'm the one that starstruck, so don't leave it there. <laughs> Because, you know, in the end, as anybody who knows my work or your work, just compare my books to her singing and we'll know who you, you'll all know who the star in this show is. It ain't me. OK, much love. <laughs> Say hi to your husband. I will. Talk I will. to you soon. Thank you. Okay, all bye. Right. Bye bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.